Uh, hello and welcome to this episode of the Better Goods podcast. I'm speaking to Mary Charles, who was the who is the co-host and correspondent for NPR's Planet Money podcast. Uh, she also has a book called The Bond King about Bill Gross. Uh, hi, Mary. Nice to have you on on the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. Um, to people who haven't read your book yet, what's your book about? My book is about well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a cop out. I'm gonna say. It's how one man made a market, built an empire, and lost it all. That's the subtitle of the book. So that's <laughs> the mega abbreviated version. But basically, it's about this guy who um, basically created the active bond trading world uh, as we know it today and was massively influential in that world for decades and um, had this really central role slash front seat view uh, in the financial crisis in 2008 and onward and helped to basically influence the U.S. government response and policy in response to that crisis. And then um, basically his downfall. That was a lot of basically, but I am boiling down 300 pages. So I, I apologize. <laughs> no problem. Um I think that one of the more interesting trends has been the movement of finance from this paper pushing thing that people would do in basements to a very high stakes, high adrenaline, hormonal game. Um, what was Bill Gross's role in that? I would argue that Bill Gross was pretty foundational to the to that transition. Um, you know, when he started his career, bonds were, like you say, pieces of paper that people kind of shuffled around. They they, you know, resided in basements in vaults. And, you know, Bill Gross's job initially was to clip the coupons off the bottom of these bond certificates and mail them in for an interest payment from the, you know, corporate debt issuer. So super basic, super stable, not a lot of risk. You know, the main risk was that a company would default on that and not be able to make those interest payments or pay back the principal. And that's like, you know, bad things have to happen for that to be the outcome. And, and you know, the world we live in now is so much riskier. And this, you know, this entire market has become this really pretty volatile place where you can make a fortune and lose it. And I would actually attribute a lot of that to Bill Gross. I mean, it's hard to say like one individual person did it. You know, he couldn't have invented active bond trading by himself, given that he's one person and one cannot trade alone. But I think that, you know, he was really foundational to that creation. They, he and the bond market really grew up together. And I think a lot of the market is truly shaped in his image. You know, he has this incredibly intense hyper focus. He has this approach to the market that um, I think a lot of people try to replicate. And wanted to, you know, emulate his his approach and his skills. And I think that the ripple effects of that are kind of hard to overstate. A quick question there. So um, can you give me some some examples of how this has changed? Like at that time, it was just, you know, people clipping papers in a, in a, in a basement somewhere. But today, what does the bond market look like to people who don't have a good picture mm-hmm. of this? Yeah. So the bond market, and and I'll talk about the corporate bond market because I think that's, you know, that's my favorite place. Um, But basically when a company comes to market, you know, wants to issue new debt, it used to be that people like Bill Gross at this insurance company would say, okay, what does this company look like? What is their credit worthiness? What's the market that they're in? How how does the future there look? And would make an analysis, would make a judgment based on that, you know, that thought process of that analysis and say, okay, I'm going to lend to you or not. And now, I mean, the same analysis happens, but there's a much larger, much more 
uh, institutionalized and competitive and intense world where um, a company will hire a bank, you know, like Morgan Stanley or whoever, and they will underwrite the debt, which means they'll kind of go out to a whole bunch of different parties and say, hey, are you interested? Hey, are you interested? And a lot of times these, you know, these bonds come with extremely long Perspective prospectuses where you describe the terms of the bond, but it's like a 500 page document. And there are tons of covenants and promises that the company's making saying, I, I will or won't do this. I will or won't do this. I, for example, you know, there are attempts these days to try to keep companies from moving intellectual property assets out of one corporate debt box into another, or, you know, some, I promise to keep my, you know, this ratio of earnings, uh, steady at this level. So, you know, and that's, this is, I'm speaking also to the loan market to some extent as well. So that's, you know, a bit in the other bucket, but the, the thing that happens next is, you know, I'm the debt buyer. I'm a, in the kind of bill gross role. I'm like, yeah, this sounds like a great investment. I love this company. I think they're doing great. I buy the debt and the minute I buy it and the minute, you know, all my compatriots buy it, it comes to market. And then some of my compatriots might sell it immediately. And what happens is a lot of these new issue bonds are underpriced. So they pop right away. And that means they, they go up in price in the very few, you know, first few hours, days of trading. And that's an, an immediate paper gain for me. And this is one of the places where in the bond market, it's very fun and delightful and still possible to make good money. And, you know, then th that kind of kicks off trading for the life of this bond. Some people buy bonds and like still put them away. And other people, a lot of people trade those bonds. So I might say, well, you know, this bond is going up in price, but I see a better opportunity elsewhere, or I want to go ahead and take my profits, as they say, any, you know, rationale, any reasoning as to why I might want to trade out of this bond and trade into a new one. Um, and that's, you know, that's the new thing. Instead of just holding on to it, instead of just keeping it in the basement, now you can find someone else. You know, I might go to a Wellington or Capital Group or Double Line or someone else, you know, and typically this is, you know, intermediate. And I would say, hey, I don't want these bonds anymore. Where can I sell them? And then on the other side, um, you know, my, my bank will help me with this. But uh, on the other side, there will be someone who's like, oh, I love this bond. Thank you so much. I'm excited to buy it at that price. And that's the market. I personally consider bond market investing to be one of the most difficult businesses in finance for two reasons. The first one being that um, it is almost bonds are the only asset class where, you know, things mature and probably apart from venture capital, but the bond matures and now you have to find a place to put the, to put the bond at the, at the at the same or the or the higher interest rate, and the second reason is that a lot of bond prices are basically impacted by one variable, which is the expected path of Fed funds rates over time. How did uh, Bill Gross deal with both of these issues? Well, I think especially with the, the you know the direction of interest rates and, and Fed funds rates, I think that that was kind of an eternal. You know, you're always chasing what you think the future will look like, right? And forecasting and trying to figure out based on the relevant economic information that we have today, what tomorrow will look like. And that was a huge part of Bill Gross's job and a huge part of his, I think, client facing and, and public facing brand, right? Where he had these monthly investment outlooks where he would project what the world was going to look like. And people loved these notes. People followed that. You know, I wrote them up monthly when I covered PIMCO, um, you know, back when I was a beat reporter at Bloomberg News. I mean, today he is still issuing them, not quite on the same regular basis, but but they are very widely read and beloved, I think, for this reason, because like it's functionally impossible, right, to predict the future. But knowing where interest rates are going 
is a huge part, as you say, of knowing how these these assets will perform and what you know the end result will look like when when the bond does mature. And I think that everyone knows that this is a bit of an impossible thing, but we must, you know, in order to do a good job, we must try. So the better you are at predicting and, and kind of building models and forecasting and looking at all and, and, and processing this massive amount of like eternally, you know, self-generating. And there's always like new data coming to market. You can buy more data. You can, there's, you know, the, the degree of noise out there is just staggering. So for someone to be able to process that, find signals and translate that is so powerful. And that I think was one thing that Bill Gross was enormously good at was both doing that kind of translation, but also broadcasting it, going on TV and talking about it, going on the radio and talking about it, writing about it. And I think, you know, sometimes it was a little bit um, obtuse, like it was a little difficult for normal people, but at the same time, people could hear that it probably made sense. You know, like, I think he'd be like, oh, the Taylor rule. And I think the average person's not going to be like, oh, the Taylor rule. Yes. I, I intuitively know what that is. I know what that means, <laughs> but I do think that, you know, even with that kind of jargon, they're like, okay, I hear that he's talking about something I don't know about. Sounds credible. And, you know, I think his end result, you know, it, it still, it helped to maybe build his credibility just in that little radio hit. And then the rest of it, people are like, oh yeah, yeah, this guy's super smart. He just sounded very accessible, even with that jargon or that kind of insider uh, language. So I feel like I answered the second part, but not the first part. Um, he would reinvest the, the, the money as it came due. And I think that, you know, the, the basic, your question is, um, what do you do with money when, when it comes back, when the bond matures? And I think that's just, you know, you reinvest the, all of it. You just keep, you just keep playing. And that's the entire game. And that's sort of the beauty of bonds, right? In this environment with so much volatility, that's kind of the pitch is that you get your money back. I agree, sort of, but he, but when he started his career, right? You had interest rates declining for 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 quite some time. I think uh, since the Walker shock till today, the peak treasury interest rate across every cycle has been going lower and lower. How did how did he and and, and other bond managers deal with the fact that structurally, you know, their their returns would be just 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 lower unless they massively increase the amount of effort they put into finding relatively worse price bonds. Or increase the leverage, right? Yeah, fair. But wouldn't that come up with the with the risk of blowing up? You know, last few months, we've seen some pretty wild moves in the bond and interest rate markets. Sure. I think that one of the ways that Bill Gross and PIMCO found to exploit this um, was to do what were kind of very risky trades or like ex taking on a lot of risk in low risk ways, if that makes sense. So one of these that I, I find very kind of easy to wrap your mind around is when you're thinking about collateralizing something, you know, you're supposed to hold cash or cash equivalents. And a lot of people are like, okay, thanks so much cash. Got it. Like, let me just, I'll just hold on to that cash. I have it right here. Let me know if you need it. Should something go wrong with this, you know, this, this contract that I've agreed to. And PIMCO would say, okay, cash and cash equivalents, you say, and really lean into that cash equivalence side of it. So this is perfectly within the, you know, regulatory, like this is fine. This is not a breach of any agreement. This is just kind of a liberal interpretation of that agreement, right? Where someone else is going to be really conservative and just hold cash. Pimico is going to say, well, huh, cash isn't yielding me that much. I'm going to go the other direction in the cash equivalent side. And I'm going to hold, you know, corporate floaters, like short dated corporate notes that will yield me just a little bit more. And you can say like, 
that's not that much riskier, right? Like I, I'm okay with that trade-off. I think that sounds really smart. And then you do it again and again and again and again and again, and it like yields you a little bit more every time. But in the aggregate, that is a lot more risk. And there is this kind of question to me, and I think to a lot of people within PIMCO, uh, did everyone understand that? Did all the clients know that that's what we were doing here, right? Like, d- is that what we all agreed to? So it's kind of, I think of it as, you know, they seem to knit more leverage, more risk into the the fabric of what they're doing. You know, it's like in the walls. It's not the thing itself. Like, they're not like, oh, I'm going to go buy like only Tesla stock in your very conservative bond. Pro-. You know, like they're not breaching any covenants here, any agreements or mandates in their in the funds, you know, documents and in the agreements that they've made with their clients, like all that's intact. It's just that the, the whole backdrop, like the air that we're breathing is just a little bit riskier. They've just found more ways to, to embed economic risk. No, I, I really like that. And, and like having a sort of firm motive, a, a way the firm itself has a, has a different, you know, attitude towards things is one of the um, most common characteristics of successful firms. Mm. What other things made PIMCO special at its heyday, you know? It wasn't just mm. Bill Goss. There were, there were other people who were, who, who uh, you know, PIMCO was more than, than some of its parts when, when, they were at their, when they were at their best. What led to that? So they have long prided themselves on being, on running really, really a tight ship, like a very kind of skeleton crew approach. They don't have as many people per asset, you know, per dollar. And they, they pride themselves on that, which means a hyper selective, you know, crew and a very intense interview process. And I think I will just say here that like every firm says this, so like take with salt, but you know, they are per capita smaller, I think, and they are. Um, the interview process I have heard is very intense. So I think, you know, comparatively that's true, but that I think, you know, they also lucked out to some degree, like one smart person leads to another in a way where if you have this like legendary character in Bill Gross, people want to work with that person, you know, now um, I would be remiss to not mention compensation here, the ability for PIMCO to really bestow great riches on its employees. That's obviously a big uh, incentive here. And and I think PIMCO was outsized in that regard at the high level. So um, a lot of people definitely made enormous fortunes for working at PIMCO and, and that attracts more talent, right? So that's very much there and sure. So there's the kind of brand of being smart and good. And like, if you want to be with the best, come this way. And if you want to be compensated like the best, come this way, especially in the mutual fund world. Um, and I think that that's, you know, again, that's self-perpetuating, you know, they had uh, Paul McCulley at PIMCO, who is just this great economic thinker and has long been one of the best Fed watchers and just understands the ways in which risk accrues in this system. And he can like see it better than other people. So that, you know, having a couple, I think of it a little bit like, I don't know, an Avengers movie, maybe where you have a couple voices, you know, people coming together to bring their own skill and their own talent and the aggregate is much more powerful as a result. It's like Captain Planet. Yeah. It's a PIMCO cinematic universe, you mean? That's right. (laughs) I'm embarrassed right now because I feel like I'm doing an ad for PIMCO, but like, yeah, that's what I'm (laughs) saying. (laughs) No, no, don't. Don't worry. My my next question is, you know, this didn't last. It it, it didn't. You know, today it's 
maybe around like 75 or 50% of the of the level of respect it had in the in the, in the <laughs> industry what went wrong i mean i'm 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 over estimating here but no you know, you're entitled to that that's fine that didn't sound wrong yeah i mean i agree i think that the, the shine has yeah it it's a different world now where like I covered bonds. I don't, I didn't realize this at the time, certainly, but I think I covered bonds. You know, I focused on the credit market when it was like the coolest. And certainly that was also when PIMCO, you know, was at the very center of, of influence. And that's, you know, the, um, I didn't cover this world back then, but leading up to the crisis and then in the crisis and after the crisis. So this is this, you know, heyday of PIMCO. And I think of bonds and, I think since then, you know, it was obviously so difficult to deal with Bill Gross's departure. I mean, that's the fundamental story. That's what's at the heart of this book is Bill Gross eventually leaves the firm that he co-founded. And, you know, it's wrenching, it's difficult, it's embarrassing, it's, you know, everything about it. Basically, I, I think went as poorly as you can expect. Maybe there are a couple other ways in which it could have been worse. But, uh, you know, he... Um, ended up suing the company. It was just, it was just ugly and very dramatic and, you know, read all about it. But I think from there, PIMCO has been trying so desperately to try to look normal, to just be a normal company and be like, oh yeah, yeah, we're thought leaders. We certainly are the best in bonds and here are our thoughts on inflation. And, you know, they have the CEO, Manny Roman, who they love. They put Dan Iveson, the CIO out there, you know, for interviews talking about inflation and buying real estate and all this stuff. And, and just, trying to look normal. And I think, I think it's working. You know, I, I was just thinking about this, you know, if you think about the world we were in, in 2014, when Bill left PIMCO, there was this sense that the place would just implode that, it, you know, and I think maybe he had this sense too. And maybe, you know, people thought that, um, that it just wouldn't be stable without him, that it wouldn't have the kind of central leadership that it needs. I don't, you know, the, the expectation was that billions of dollars would leave PIMCO and follow Bill. And wherever he went, you know, like he was, he was PIMCO and what were they without him? And so with that kind of backdrop, they've done an incredible job of keeping it together and presenting themselves as a normal firm and becoming more institutionalized and not this founder led, you know, funny, culturally specific place. Yeah, no, I think that's a common trait among many, many large investment firms, right? Because investment success is so dependent on on, on single person, especially for these uh, discretionary funds that that never works around. There's probably some uh, founder or portfolio manager of a successful fund who wants to know this. What can he or she do to to ensure that, that that these best practices are, are are institutionalized, that you know, if one man goes off the ship, it doesn't sink. Having a deep bench is the first thing they'll say. You know, having people who can step up and who are ready to kind of graduate to the next level, I think, is sort of one hundred and one. Um, it's hard because necessarily your founder will be a powerful person just by virtue of having founded the company and built it and run it. And your founder will be probably a little controlling micromanagey uh, just by virtue of, you know, who tends to be good at this, who tends to succeed and like how these companies become so big and successful is usually that the founder is a little bit particular and intense and blah, 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 all, all traits that make it even harder to affect one of these transitions, you know, gracefully. So I think, um, it requires the manager, the founder to have kind of a self-awareness that I think is difficult to ask of them. 
Um, I, I don't know. I, I, there are so few examples of this going well that it's sort of uh, a challenge. You know, there are a lot of how not to, and there are very few how to. I think there's like one hedge fund in Texas that has effectuated this successfully. And it's like, great, we got one. <laughs> like everywhere else, it's an absolute mess, you know? So I think, um, I think there are very few lessons to take from here because it's kind of the luck of the draw if you have a founder who is kind of self-aware and sees that they're mortal and can't keep doing this and should not keep doing this, you know, can't keep running the ship forever. Um, and, and again, that's super rare. So I don't know how to fake that. Um, you know, the way in which you do it, what happens is clients are like, Hey, what are you going to do? Like your founder's still around. They're going to die one day or retire or anything. And there's always, you know, this hit by a bus idea, you know, what, what's your plan? And this, this is a huge thing that clients ask about all the time and put pressure on these firms, especially the ones that have too much power or, you know, investment, uh, influence concentrated in one person and, and firms do have to come up with an answer. You know, there are boards that have to deal with this, there are management committees, there, there are formal processes, but as you see in this story, in my book, these don't always go very well. It's still, even if you have these formal institutions trying to deal with this and trying to navigate it, it's still incredibly difficult and, you know, depends a lot on having that founder on board and able to kind of stick with you and agree to the plans that you come up with. Yeah. Funnily, this sounds a lot like political uh, transitions and dictatorships, if I were to bother. (laughs) (laughs) You know, right. Yeah. I don't think that's one. an inappropriate comparison. <laughs> that's okay. I, I don't think mo- most listeners would would object. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a serious problem. But, uh, when you talked about clients, you know, a lot of investors put an emphasis on picking the right clients. They they, they talk about picking clients with, with long-term vision and those who are aligned with the founder. But in the book, I didn't get a sense that Bill Gross was particularly big on that. I, I thought that 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 money was fungible to him. Is that is is that true, or did they have a preference for the kind of clients they they picked? What a good question. I think in the beginning, um, there was a concentration on recruiting or like pitching to big clients just for scale, um, and that you know that's that's one way. And they also tended to, I think, vibe with clients that enjoyed like derivatives and were a little bit more adventurous and risk seeking. Um, so that was one, you know, that's one way in which they they picked who they worked with. But I think more than more than anything, Bill Gross valued loyalty and wanted his clients to value loyalty as well. I think the idea is that, you know, this is a long-term relationship. Like you're saying, I think they did value that, especially Bill individually. Now he wasn't a client facing person, really. He was kind of, you know, he would meet with clients, but he wasn't like a client person. It wasn't his job. His job was investing. And I think he saw the relationship as I'm going to do this for you. And he expected gratitude for that. And, you know, his, his whole job, his whole goal, his whole life was oriented around delivering, you know, the best for the client. And if someone didn't appreciate that, I think he was like, okay, bye, you know? So that's, um, again, not uncommon in investment management, like you're saying, but money is money there. I think generally everyone's like pretty happy to, you know, get inflows, but you're right that, and you know, these are mutual funds. These aren't like, you know, no, no one's like, 
you know, hey, Bill Gross, I'm an institution, like I'm a high net worth family office and I'm thinking about investing, you know, this much in your mutual fund for, can you get me a better deal? Like that just doesn't happen. So, I mean, to some extent it does, like the the fee classes or, or the share classes are different and the fees are different, but the it's just not like a hedge fund where that that relationship, you know, I'm the seed investor or whatever. That's a, a slightly different situation where I think it's more um, acutely relevant to their trajectory, you know, to the firm's viability. Um, when you get to the scale that we're talking about with with Pimco and Bill at their heyday, you know, they could lose a couple billion dollars and not really notice. I wish I had that, but no. But, I know, uh, <laughs> right? I know. Oh no, my clients pulled millions and millions. Like that's fine. No, Seems yeah, fine. Yeah. Uh, something I found, found uh, really interesting was that you know uh, we had Muhammad El El Arian, if I'm pronouncing it right, and he was uh-huh. essentially uh, he was essentially an an academic, right? He 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 got his PhD at the best university in the world, worked with with the IMF, and then suddenly made a transition to uh, the, the world of corporate management, of, of corporate investing. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was a reason in, well, of, uh, that was the reason why they had such large differences or was it largely personality driven between them? Both. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. He just had a different approach from, from Bill on how they see and talk about the market. And that would manifest, I think, in investment committee meetings and in other meetings where, you know, Bill wants a trade idea. Bill wants to know what you're going to do about it. Like, I don't really care if you think that, you know, the economy is coming to a T-junction. What does that mean for the portfolio? And those are fundamentally different orientations, like you're saying. Like, it's, it's he's an academic, but he's also an economist. And yes, he was an investor. Yes, he, you know, ran portfolios and had traded. So he had that experience, but his general overall, like, posture was that of an economist and is that of an economist. And Bill is just a consummate trader. So those are fundamentally different and sometimes opposing viewpoints where I think that would manifest in in meetings and people would, you know, have to bear witness to Muhammad talking and Bill just getting frustrated that he's like not actually saying anything. He's using all this economic mumbo jumbo, as he would say. And I think that Yes, you, you've hit the nail on the head. And but that is like personality, right? Like that is they also had wildly different management styles where Muhammad is like super polished and polite and just diplomatic and is just going to shower you with, you know, kindness and platitudes and, and just all of the manners in the whole universe. And Bill does not have time for that. Like he's just does not see the utility of all that. And I think that, you know, maybe Muhammad would have appreciated a little bit more politeness and maybe Bill would have appreciated a little bit more directness. They're just really different people. So structurally, personality-wise, management style, investing style, all of it, they're just very different people. In a way, I think you're right. They were kind of cursed from the beginning in that way. <laughs> yeah, no, I found that uh, like one of the most uh, in- interesting there. But one thing I found really interesting about Bill Gross's personality was, as you mentioned, he had, you know, the ability to absorb large amounts of information and put that into concise ways. What what specifically was that a personality trait? Did he did he learn it? Did he you know hire hire a coach? How would you try to try to understand his ability to do that? Wait to to can you can you do the question one, one more time? He, I just how, to make sure I got it. How did he you know was he naturally talented in being able to consume large amounts of information and make it into a you know into 
into into one simple insight he can repeat on TV? <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's, you know, again, that's a, such a skill is to be able to monitor the world, the markets, what people are saying, what politicians are saying, what other investors are saying, sentiment, um, you know, and various economic indicators and, and process it all. There's also a lot of value in kind of stating the consensus view and being right in the middle there and saying, okay, this is what people are thinking. This is what people are seeing. You know, this rally may not be done yet. There may be more to come here. This, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for kind of just putting a point on it. And I think, I think that was a lot of the role. Yeah. Uh, friends and I often joke that investment managers are the only people in the, in the world who are paid millions of dollars to come on TV and say the obvious. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so no, I'm, really. And they, and they're, they're like, and this is a meritocracy. And you're like, I don't know. I feel like I also go on TV and can say obvious things. Like, where are my millions? I don't know. No one's given them to me yet. I'm waiting. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, a weird status game we, we play. But mm-hmm. you know, he lived on the attention, right? He, 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 that was one of the things he really, really liked. He was sort of a more aggressive Warren Buffett. How did that uh, impact? No, the impact flowed flow both ways. Obviously, the, the attention air impacted him. But many times people make the, make the argument recently with you know, hedge fund managers go, going on TV and saying, hell is coming. And you know, that having price mm-hmm. impacts. Did this ever flow both ways? How did how did the markets and uh, Bill goes into that? Well, I think the markets, you know, people, traders across the country and across the world listened to Bill Gross and talked constantly about what, quote, the beach, quote, was doing. Now, you know, how much of it was. I think that Bill Gross and people at PIMCO were very good at knowing how to go on TV and talk about their book and talk about their trades and, you know, influence the market. Um, there's a story in my book where Bill Gross goes on TV, you know, five minutes before a tips auction. And he's like, oh, I think tips, you know, have no value here. You know, don't buy tips. Tips are worthless. And I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing. And then, you know, five minutes later, there's a tips auction and who's the biggest bidder or one of the biggest bidders, PIMCO. So maybe Bill Gross had a different opinion from his tips trader who wanted to be in the auction and thought tips did have value here. Or there's a world in which you interpret that as Bill Gross talking down the security he's about to buy, you know? So um, there's, there's a big sense that people listened to Bill Gross very intently and followed what he did. You know, if, if Bill Gross likes, you know, debt from Brazil, buy Brazil. If Bill Gross thinks this is the way interest rates are going, let's follow. If Bill Gross doesn't like this security, let's get out of it. So I think all of that was massively influential, Bill, you know, Bill and PIMCO. And, and that's true by virtue of they were so big that a lot of that could become self-fulfilling, right? If they're the anchor buyer in a new issue, in a debt issue that com- that's coming to market, then a lot of that debt's already getting bought and you know that there's support for that debt. So it's probably going to do well. So you can buy it too. You know, that's the logic, right? And so I think that that that, that interaction, you're exactly right. It did flow two ways. There was a, a very, very strong following and a very, you know, Bill and Pimco were, were massively influential in kind of shaping the direction and flows of market and, and, and kind of creating its own self-fulfilling tide. Yeah, no, I I agree, and the and the other like the like the other end of this uh, balance is that you know 
there was a strong revolving door between PIMCO and uh, the Fed and the and the and the Treasury. But I've never understood why. Ben Bernanke is not a particularly good investor. Neil Kashkari isn't, you know, again, a very good investor. Why do former Fed officials keep getting hired when A, they're, they're, not, they're probably in the 60th or 70th percentile of macroeconomic forecasters and probably below median in, 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 in trading financial assets. That, that's just not their job, but they still keep mm-hmm. getting hired. I mean, part of it's branding. Right. Part of it is a flex to say, look, we can hire Ben Bernanke, the literal one and only Ben Bernanke. So there's there's definitely like a just an, a brand influence part of that. I think there's also an element of, you know, maybe they're not the ones to say what the trade idea is, but they better than anyone know how the institution works and what's going to like how the conversations happen and how data is going to be interpreted, yada, yada. So there is value in talking to Fed officials and getting their perspective. It may not be, you know, the Fed's going to do X, therefore we should do Y. You know, they're not going to be that person to spell it out, you know probably, hopefully, as you say. But um, I do think that there, there's still, um, you know, Neil Kashkari was arguably like misused in that way. Like he came to PIMCO to, and and he, you know, was a pre-Fed official at the time. So let's be clear, but he was hired to, to basically create new products at PIMCO to do new businesses. And it was super nebulous. And a lot of new businesses hadn't really worked at PIMCO. Like it's just not fertile ground for non-bond endeavors. And that was his job, non-bond endeavors. So, you know, very arguably he was not set up to succeed at PIMCO. So that was kind of an idiosyncratic situation. But I do think that hiring a Fed official as a consultant is a flex and is probably just useful in getting your mental models straight and making sure that you're understanding the way the Fed is interpreting this or that. And like that, I think is the primary value add is, is, is getting that kind of you know, how to interpret the world and the moment we're in and where we're going. Like, what do they see? Like, it's it's a bit of a window. Um, this is completely out of the blue. But, a, but a, a theory I have is that to measure the amount of, you know, unhealthy discretion policymakers have, a good measure of that is the amount of a devolving door practices that happen. You, know, you see this in pharmaceuticals where in, uh, the, the FDA and, and various other country uh, equ- equivalents have very high levels of interchange between industry and, uh, and uh, the regulators. And partially it's, it's because if you understand what the regulators are doing, that, that makes your life easier. But in the long run, this probably isn't healthy, you know, because smaller companies, more innovative ones won't have the same level of access to the inside. And, 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 and that means that they'll have less regulatory clarity compared to your more uh, established ones. This probably slows down innovation and growth in the long run. Is this true today with the, you know, with the large discretionary nature of the, of the, of the Fed? Does the Fed have too much discretion? Feel, you know, if you, if you, if you don't feel like you can answer this, no problem with that. <laughs> well, I would actually go the opposite direction where like, uh-huh. Isn't the the greater concern that, you know, if I'm at the SEC and I'm regulating or I'm looking for, you know, infractions and I know that tomorrow I can call an investment manager who I regulate today and get a job, like, am I going to go hard on them? Am I going to actually use the full force of my office in the appropriate and judicious way that I should if I want a job at Citadel or wherever tomorrow? Like, is that how, like, doesn't that change my behavior? If I know that I can cash in by just 
calling my buddies at the places that I'm supposed to be tough on right now. Like that, I think is the more acute, like, no, you're right. The other way is important too. And, and, and warrants critical thought. But I think like the kind of, I don't know, like we have seen so many of these, uh, governmental offices, you know, they say they're so understaffed. They say they need more cops on the beat. They're really like having a hard time keeping up with all the financial innovation and the different ways in which these things are translated and the, you know, the laws from the 1940s, how do they apply today? Like keeping all of the, the things kind of on the rails. I, I don't know. I feel like that to me is like, you, you want regulators who are doing their jobs, who are able to do their jobs and who aren't thinking about the next job that they will get and the kind of lucrative opportunities that will come their way if they don't make enemies in their current job. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. But I just think that the Fed's monetary policy functions are the closest to any large American federal government thing that can be automated. You know, you can have a futures market. We already do have a sort of futures market with, with, with inflation. And it's not hard to see how you can automate it. But that's like one of my, uh, one of my weird things that keep going, going on about to people. <laughs> Is that you want to automate the Fed? Sort of, yeah. You, I love is, that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of like we already have an inflation futures market. We should probably have a nominal GDP futures market too, because inflation is kind of a made-up number. You know, this, the, the, there's so much stuff that goes behind the scenes in, in the BLS, and 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 I don't blame them. It's a it's a it's a very hard job, but in the end, you know, it's it's not a perfect thing. So you, you got to have a, an an NGDP futures market. So yeah, that's like a, 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 a very niche concern of mine. Which I, yeah, I love it. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> a question I had was that you know a lot of your work at at uh, writing in, in journalism was was very short du- duration, right? You you rarely covered things that went across forty or fifty years like you do, like you mm-hmm. do now. Yeah. And yeah. what was the jump from short term news to long term writing like? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's such a good question because it was really uh, mind blowing. I feel like like. Like you say, I I wrote these kind of short term articles where I would talk to people and they'd be like, yeah, right now we're really investing in, um, you know, we're doing a barbell strategy where we're buying passive indexes and then we're investing in real estate and, you know, on the very active side and, you know, venture capital. I'm like, okay, okay. And I write it down and I publish it. And then I distinctly remember talking to a pension manager from the seventies and he was like, yeah, I did a barbell strategy. Um, you know, we were buying mall properties and, you know, doing passive index stuff. And I was like, wait, what? what? I just wrote that article and said it was new. You know what I mean? So there was this like deep, and I think this is part of just like being in your twenties and realizing that history has happened before you and being like, wait, has it? Oh my God, what happened? No one told me. So just ignorance, but, um, it was very, uh, just understanding the long, long history that had come before and the way in which like the place, how we got to the place where we are. And a lot of these people, that help to shape the world that we live in are around and want to tell you about it. You know, nobody asks them. And I had a couple of people where like, I couldn't get them to stop telling me at a certain point. Like, I'd be like, okay, thanks so much. And like, they still wanted to talk because they were there. They saw it all happen. And like, no one wants to listen to their stories. You know, no one asks anymore. And it's just like, that. it is like, it made me want to write 50 books. Like, I don't want to write another book. I'd rather die. But at the same time, like there's so much out there to say. And there's so many historical, you know, while we still have, you know, the, the kind of, aging founders of the modern, you know, capital markets that we have today, like we, we should ask them and write down what they experienced and how it all happened. So I don't know, it, it was really, um, I did it inefficiently at first because I was so thrilled to be able to 
dig in and like actually read ancient newspaper articles and like talk to people about their experience in the 19 whatevers. And, you know, they're all name checking people that I've never heard of. And like, you know, talking about, you know, Supreme court cases that I have to Google. And (laughs) it was just, it was really eye opening and, and a really good kind of crash course in the history of modern capitalism. And I feel very lucky that I got to do that because it's been so informative for my coverage now where, you know, I wish everyone could like start by writing a book. I can't recommend, I don't think it's a good idea, but it would help in, you know, people telling me stuff now they're like, Oh yeah, I'm doing this new fun, crazy thing here. Let me tell you about it. I'm like, that's so old though. (laughs) I'm like, you didn't come up with something new. That's the same. (laughs) And I know that now. (laughs) No, no, I agree. What, like uh, what you're saying really reminds me of a Robert Caro's autobiography working. And I'm like, Oh, every single biographer tells that, you know, I'm, 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 I found this huge treasure of information and I have never, ever, you know, nobody's ever seen this. So um, on that topic, who are your favorite biographers? Not necessarily Hmm. financial, anyone. Well, Robert Caro, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Janet Malcolm is a big one for me. I went, I'm like sort of always in a big Janet Malcolm phase. Um, The, her, her Freud work is incredible. Her Sylvia Plath work is incredible. Um, Just, love it. I think the, you know, the journalist, the murder is like a obvious kind of benchmark gold standard for journalism. Anyone interested in journalism, both as a practitioner and not should read it because it's a very brutal analysis. And she just has like a way of, uh, I think what's most admirable to me about her work is that it's, she just makes analyses just like seemingly on the fly. And I guess that's, the sign of good writing is that it seems effortless and I'm sure it wasn't, but you know, she'll, she'll just say a sentence that's so judgmental and you're like, Whoa, you can just say that. Like she just observed, she's such a keen observer and so incisive. And it appears reading her work that, you know, she must just be again, processing a bajillion pieces of information and serving it all up to you. in this like jam packed sentence that has every piece of context and dripping with judgment, you know, just she, she captures so much and process it for you and just says it the way she sees it. And I don't know. I found that I just am obsessed. I, I really, um, I just respect her work so much and think it's really, really admirable. So that would be my pick, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I have not let her work. I I will now. Oh, I'll you have so it. much ahead of you. That's so yes. beautiful. I'm happy for you. Yeah. The sign of a good author is always when somebody tells you, I wish I was you and and and, and reading this for the first yeah. time. So, yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> so I'm uh glad to get on that. Um, I think we'll be reaching the 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 end of this now. Thank you so much for coming on. I've I've had a lot of fun talking to you because I don't have so many finance guests on. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really, it's been a delight. Yep.